God bless and welcome to this week's episode of Family Discussion. We are so glad that you've joined us today. Family Discussion is a podcast of Reform Margins, a site dedicated to providing a platform for people of color to engage the larger Reformed and Evangelical conversations. Jesus teaches us in the Gospel of John that the world will know that we are his followers by the way that we love one another. And yet it seems like the love of Jesus is less and less evident in the way that we speak to and about one another, especially when we disagree. So, in the hopes of recapturing the brother-sister love that Jesus has won for us, we are calling a family meeting. For the next half hour, let's cut through the noise and look at the issues without slander and malice. It's time for a family discussion. Well, God bless and welcome everyone to today's edition of Family Discussion. We are so excited to be with you today. And as always, I am joined by my co-host, the incredible Lisa Spencer. Lisa, how are you today? I'm doing well. How are you, Marcos? I'm good. I'm excited because this is a milestone episode of the podcast. We have our very first guest in the history of Family Discussion. So Lisa, why don't you tell us a little bit about what we're doing today? So today, um, so if you've been listening to our last few episodes, we have been laying some foundations about some of the the disagreements that we find ourselves, the church, and particularly out of the Reformed tradition, um, finds ourselves in, and particularly related to social issues. And so to talk about, you know, why we have these disagreements, um, we're looking at some of the foundations by which people, you know, as Christians are looking at it and saying, you know, what is the, in, you know, what is the Christian's responsibility? What is the church's responsibility? So we've talked about what is the gospel? How do we define the gospel? Because depending on how you define that, whether from a broad perspective or narrow perspective is going to inform your that how you respond to that responsibility. Um, we talked about common grace. We talked about sola scriptura. So today uh, we thought we'd uh, talk about another topic um, that is more specific to Presbyterianism, but it's components, I think, actually inform the larger discussion in terms of our responsibility, how do we view our responsibility uh, regarding social issues? So we have a very special guest uh, with us today, Dr. Sean Lucas. Uh, Welcome, Dr. Lucas. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you for joining us today. Um, Dr. Lucas is a church historian. Um, If you are in the PCA and you have not read his book for a continuing church shame on you and (laughs) i encourage you to you know go to uh wherever it's uh wherever you can get it um not amazon i actually have a thing about amazon now Uh, but uh you know for a continuing church it it traces the developments of what led to the start of the pca it's very informative um, it's not necessarily an easy read, um, but I think it really will help us, uh, help you to really understand the, what the PCA, how, you know, how that was developed, why it was formed, why it separated from the PCUS in 1973. 
Um, and uh, Dr. Lucas also is senior pastor at, um, sorry, I should have, what is what, what I'm, at, I'm at independent okay. independent Presbyterian Church in Memphis, Tennessee. Which independent has, Presbyterian on, Church, on um, and also as a professor at uh, Reformed Theological Seminary. Uh, so welcome, Dr. Lucas, and um, I'm going to ask uh, my co-host to kind of introduce us to the topic and um, and ask you a few questions about it. Yeah. So, um, Dr. Lucas, welcome. Thank you for spending time with us today. We're talking specifically today about a doctrine called the spirituality of the church. This is a doctrine that's been uh, really heavily debated. It's a, a doctrine that comes from the UK, from the Westminster Standards. Uh, Kevin DeYoung recently argues that you find it even in the second book of discipline in the Church of Scotland. Um, but it's a doctrine that has, in a democracy like the United States, caused some controversy. How does the church speak to social issues? This is especially a hot topic when issues of social justice come to the fore. And so, Dr. Lucas, I was wondering if you could walk us a little bit through what is the doctrine of the spirituality of the church? And um, we can just start with the definition, and we can start asking some questions about its application. Sure. So spirituality of the church doctrine, that's kind of a, a handle uh, for uh, a, a fairly distinctive way of understanding a, a section of the Westminster Standards. In his classic form, James Henley Thornwell, the 19th century Southern Presbyterian theologian, he put it this way. He said, the church has no commission to construct society afresh to change the forms of its political constitutions, the problems which the anomalies of our fallen state are continually forcing on philanthropy, the church has no right to solve. She must leave them to the providence of God uh, and to human wisdom sanctified and guided by the spiritual influences, which is her glory to foster and to cherish. And so, so Thornwell's concern comes out of this commitment to church-state separation uh, and a desire for the church to be free of state influence, but but also conversely for the state uh, to not be ruled over by the church. And, and when you take it in those terms, okay, yeah, not so bad. Uh, and it's interesting, Kevin's recent argument that the spirituality church doctrine is found in the second book of, of discipline in the Church of Scotland. That's not unique to him. Uh, Stuart Robinson in the 19th century argued the same thing. I think it's a little ironic uh, that uh, we go back to the Church of Scotland, which is a church established by the state. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> the state. I mean, so it, that doesn't buy you a lot of points. But 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 underlying the the at least the desire in its classic form. Uh, from Thornwell and others is a desire to keep church and state separate for the most part, for the church to do its job, its mission, for the state to carry out its mission. Uh, and, it, and it really was an attempt to try to flesh out uh, the section from the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 31, paragraph 4, uh, where the confession reads, synods and councils are to handle or conclude nothing but that which is ecclesiastical and are not to intermeddle with civil affairs, which concern the Commonwealth, unless by humble petition in cases extraordinary or by way of advice for satisfaction of conscience, if they be thereunto required by the civil magistrate. So that paragraph appears to limit the church to its sphere and the state to its sphere. Again, we would probably have no problem with that. The, the rub comes in a couple of places. One, um, 
again, remembering that the standards, the Westminster Confession of Faith was written by an ecclesiastical assembly called by the state uh, and envisioned, the Presbyterians actually envisioned a state church. So what does that all look like? What does that mean? Uh, and then the, the second thing is that, um, uh, that you have to kind of wrestle through is, so how did the, the Presbyterians, particularly as they come to North America, particularly as they come to the South, how then do they understand this, this particular paragraph and this particular ideal of the spiritual mission of the church? as separated out from what the state is responsible for. So that's in a basic kind of three minutes, a, a basic overview of the doctrine. Yeah, that's really helpful. And and for some people who are aware of some of the debates in Presbyterianism, um, this can also be where there's some disagreement between, for example, two kingdoms theology and transformationalist theology. Um, and, and a lot of the debate centers around this small little phrase in paragraph four, um, the exception, except in extraordinary cases. Um, and you can either read that and really limit the church's influence, or you can widen that up and drive a truck <laughs> through this phrase, extraordinary cases, or cases extraordinary. And, you know, so one of the questions that I, that I have is, as the doctrine has been applied, you know, you quoted to begin um, the, the the Southern theologian Thornwell. Dabney is another one. Um, when Thorne, when Thornwell and Dabney are brought forward, there's some immediate questions because of their positions in the 19th century. So what are some ways that this doctrine has been applied that may lead to some of the controversy around this doctrine? Well, and you've touched on cases extraordinary, that language. I mean, that that's the kicker, right? I mean, the, the 19th century's other Presbyterian theologian and apologist, Francis Beatty, who taught at Louisville Seminary, he wrote that it's not easy to decide what are extraordinary cases justifying partition, and then where is the arbiter to decide upon such cases? Uh, and, and that's really the rub, right? I mean, so in the 19th century, um, in the hands of a Thornwell or a Dabney, um, Certainly issues related to slavery were placed outside. Those are the issues of the state. Those are political and social policies. They don't actually, of course, there's a rub here, and we'll get to it in a minute, I'm sure, don't actually impact anything with scripture. And so ministers are to remain silent. Um, what about science? That's another issue that came up in the 19th century um, when Columbia Seminary in South Carolina established the Perkins Chair on natural revelation in connection with uh, biblical revelation or science in connection with biblical revelation. Um, there was lots of debate, um, particularly from uh, Thornwell, uh, about whether such a chair was appropriate. Um, and there were other Southern Presbyterians that said, no, science needs to be, it's one of the two books of Revelation. Uh, they need to be considered together. Or education, should the Presbyterian church have its own university? That was another issue that was debated. Uh, and, and the spirituality of the church doctrine comes up. And so, so trying to figure out how to apply the doctrine um, is, is the big challenge. Um, in the 19th century, uh, it, it's very much... Uh, is invoked regularly in relationship to slavery uh, and issues related to race, so much so that as historians have looked at this doctrine, they see it as, to use uh, Brooks Hollifield's language, uh, a, a protective gesture, uh, that any time race or slavery was brought up in the antebellum period, 
um, spirituality of the church or the spiritual mission of the church would be brought forth so much so that um, Peter Slade, the historian, uh, wrote that the spirituality of the church is, in fact, a time-tested political strategy of powerful men to perpetuate an unjust status quo free from moral censure. It's a sophisticated theological resistance to systemic change. It is not an innocent doctrine misused. So, so if we're going to try to defend the spirituality of the church doctrine in any form, uh, we're going to have to to admit that a uh, or well first a we have to figure out what does it really mean what did the divines really intend uh, and then b uh, to admit that hey this has been misused throughout presbyterian history especially uh, and, uh, and and misused in ways that actually counter contradict contradict the biblical message of justice uh, for a range of people and the biblical message that the gospel is for the nations and that God expects a multiracial, multiethnic church. Right. right. And it is around issues of race and, and it, it, the, the doctrine was used to support slavery. It was also used to support segregationism in the mid 20th century. Um, it's a, it, it we see the doctrine a lot in the South, but we also do seem to see it in the North as well. And sometimes we get this sense of, oh, well, the South was the scary racist place and North was the safe haven. Not necessarily the truth at all. Um, in fact, the, one of the things that intrigued me was that um, Dr. Machen, who was the founder of Westminster Theological Seminary, where uh, Dr. Lucas, you got your doctorate, where I got my Master of Divinity. He wrote a little bit on this doctrine as well. I'm reading an excerpt here um, that's provided by R. Scott Clark on his blog. Um, and he, he wrote this, Dr. Machen wrote this little, um, it's a shorter writing, if you will, uh, called The Responsibility of the Church in the New Age. And just a, a short excerpt from this, he says, Dr. Machen says, there are certain things which you cannot expect from such a true Christian church. In the first place, you cannot expect from it any cooperation with non-Christian religion or with a non-Christian program of ethical culture, which is a surprising thing to say with an understanding of co-belligerency and stuff like that and brings up some questions. But then he says, in the second place, you cannot expect from a true Christian church any official pronouncements upon the political or social questions of the day. Um, which is surprising to hear in a modern evangelical context, which we're very regularly talking about the issue of abortion, for example, um, where we are willing to talk about the importance of upholding a biblical understanding of marriage. Um, and so I guess the, the question is, is there a problem with the doctrine itself or is there a doctrine with the consistency in which we are applying this doctrine? Well, I'm sorry. And I'm sorry. I don't. And one thing I wanted to note on in that with in that regard, Dr. Lucas, one of the things that you note in your article in terms of the silence of, you know, on, um, you know, civil affairs, except when they touch on issues of morality. So as you're addressing, you know, addressing Marcos's question, it seems to me that it hinges on what are you know, what are those questions of morality um, and, and how does that get applied? Because there does seem to be an inconsistency on how that, what's determined moral that the church can now speak to. Yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, the rest of what Thornwell had said 
uh, in, a, in the key section where he defines the spirituality of the church is he says the church can announce what it teaches, what the Bible teaches, enjoin what it commands and prohibit what it condemns. Beyond the Bible, she can never go. And apart from the Bible, she can never speak. And so these, these public issues that come up, whether it's marriage, whether it's abortion, whether it's, uh, uh, you know, what's being taught in school, whatever. I mean, the Bible certainly speaks to those issues. Uh, and, and it does speak, I would argue, <laughs> from beginning to end to issues regarding race. And so, um, and even the, even the case that Marcus brought up uh, that Machen's talking about in this period concerning prohibition. Of course, Machen was a wet. Uh, he, he uh, when the Presbyterian, the PCUSA, the Northern Presbyterian Church, voted to support the Volstead Act, the 19th Amendment to the Constitution, which prohibited the manufacture and sale of, of beverage alcohol, Machen voted against that. Um, but at the same time, in the Southern Church, they were loudly in favor of prohibition, and the General Assembly went on record. Uh, and so, so trying to discern the lines between, well, certainly the Bible speaks to drunkenness, uh, right? Don't be drunk with wine, be filled with the Holy Spirit, but it doesn't prohibit alcohol. So how do we talk about those issues uh, it, from the biblical perspective? It's always going to be hard, but we can't punt. <laughs> we, we have to address moral issues uh, when the Bible speaks to them, which of course brings you back to uh, the issues that we're struggling with today, which are the kind of the recurring theme in American religious history, issues of race and justice, because the Bible certainly speaks concerning the races, concerning the variety of ethnicities that are to be contained in the church. And it does speak over and over and over again about justice. I mean, right now in my Bible reading, my morning worship, I'm reading through Isaiah and I'm just circling every time Isaiah says the word justice. And it's like every chapter is <laughs> talking about justice. Uh, and yet how many sermons, even in a conservative PCA churches, do we hear on justice, which the Bible throughout the Old Testament and the New talks about. And so the, the Southern Presbyterian theologians clearly made space for talking about moral issues. Uh, and, and in fact, they would address the duties of masters uh, and the duties of slaves. But when it came to the overarching narrative of freedom and the narrative of justice, they didn't want to talk about that. Well, and that, that sort of inconsistency has led to a lot of suspicion about the doctrine. Um, and, and so I wonder if you can speak for a moment to that suspicion in, in your article. And, and we are referencing an article um, and, and we commend this to our listeners. It's an article in the um, Reformed Theological Seminary Journal, and it's called Owning Our Past, the Spirituality of the Church in History, Failure, and Hope. And in this article, you are arguing that the doctrine itself is a beautiful confessional biblical doctrine that is simply being either misapplied or applied inconsistently. And so I'm wondering if you could dream the scenario where this doctrine is being applied consistently and the way that the divines and scripture would want it applied, what does that actually look like? Well, I, I think it actually looks like what the divines intended because synods and councils are to handle or conclude nothing but that which is ecclesiastical. Well, okay, so when the Bible speaks to moral issues, <laughs> that's in our purview, right? It's right for the church. I mean, the PCA wrote a, a powerful paper in 1977 on abortion. It's right for us to address abortion. Uh, it's right there in the Sixth Commandment. The larger catechism addresses it. 
But when the Bible speaks to issues related to justice, um, like in the Eighth Commandment, um, thou shalt not steal in the midst of that, it talks about restitution. Uh, and so we need to talk about that. That's a justice issue. Uh, and how do we how do we address those things? So, you know, synods and councils are not to deal with anything but that which is enthusiastical. And so, so that's what we're to address. But on the other side, I, I wouldn't want us to be a church um, that is constantly, you know, on C- having our representatives on CNN or MSNBC or the like commenting on every particular thing on behalf of the church. Um, it's, it's important that it says synods and councils. Um, as, you know, as, as the church speaks, we speak collectively. I, I, I don't know if I necessarily would want uh, an ethics and religious liberty commission of the PCA with a president out there speaking on a range of things on behalf of the church. I, I think as the church speaks in its courts, um, we have something to say there. And then as individual ministers, as we apply the word of God to our congregations and to local situations, we certainly would then speak to where the Bible speaks. Uh, and then we're silent where the Bible is silent. But, but the Bible has a lot to say about the range of moral issues that we face as a church in the 21st century, much more than we actually address. I think that's a, there's a helpful distinction there. I mean, you, you bring up the ERLC, which is the Southern Baptist Conventions, kind of their, uh, I don't, I don't want to say political arm because that sounds really bad, but it, it is kind of their political, um, the way they're able to speak to political issues um, is a, a product of Baptist ecclesiology. Um, Presbyterian ecclesiology, there is no need for that because we have presbyteries and synods and the General Assembly. And so we can speak authoritatively as a denomination without the need for this kind of political arm. Um, But I wonder where the line is because we have a sister denomination that does speak regularly from the general assembly about a whole host of issues. Um, They also typically are very liberal in their theology, but you know, when, when we think of an issue, for example, like climate change, well, the Bible is very clear about how we are to treat creation. And yet there is a, I think, legitimate disagreement over how that is a public policy issue. There's a whole lot of these issues out there. So where is the line from speaking prophetically to a social issue and some suddenly becoming a partisan tool? Sure. Well, but I mean, just to take climate change as an example, I mean... I've been in the PCA pretty long time. We've never talked about that. And we probably ought to talk about creation care, you know, at some level or another. But, you know, I digress. You know, I, <laughs> one of the one of the issues and it's one of the things I talk about in for continuing church, which is the history of how the PCA came to be. One of the key moments is in 1934 when the General Assembly uh, establishes their permanent committee on social and moral welfare. And I do think that that, that to me was the parallel to the ERLC <laughs> in the Southern Baptist okay. You know, and I, I'm not sure I would be uh, in favor of a permanent committee or an agency um, that has the responsibility to speak on behalf of the church uh, in those issues. Uh, I kind of think the way we actually deal with these issues, at least in my world in the PCA, uh, is a great way of doing it, which is when something rises to the level of uh, the, the synod and council, if you will, the General Assembly, needing to take notice and instruct the church, 
uh, we put a committee together. Uh, and usually, uh, although uh, there are some in our church that view our study committees with some measure of suspicion, I've been on two of them. Uh, and to me, I think they, they, they do a pretty good job for what they do, which is they try to speak to the issue, whatever the issue is. They generally kind of stand right in the center uh, in kind of PCA fashion. This is what the Bible says. This is what the confession says. This is how to apply it. But we're not going to one extreme or another and really have given good biblical counsel uh, in a denomination that looks a little askance at MTC's deliverances. I mean, the, the position papers are not church law. But they're really helpful guidance, which is exactly in line with, in my opinion, 31.4, uh, that, you know, we're, we're dealing with things ecclesiastical. We recognize that churches, that synods and councils can err, but we need to speak to the issue of the day. Uh, and so here's, here's our best shot <laughs> under the guidance of the Holy Spirit um, to, to try to speak to the issue of the day. Thank you. That's really helpful. And, and I think... Um, what we need to underscore for our listeners is the argument that the doctrine of the spirituality of the church is somehow um, going to restrain us from speaking prophetically, either as ministers or as a denomination, is a false understanding of the doctrine. We can and must speak prophetically where the Bible calls us to do that. The limit is where the Bible calls us to do that and not just bring in our own politics and our own, um, our own preferences and opinions about the issues of the day to bear in an ecclesiastical form. Listen, if you, you want to go out there and say, Hey, here's what I think about an issue. Fine. Right. But the church and, and ministers don't get in the pulpit and give our own ideas. Right. We preach the word and we apply the word to the issue of the day. Yeah. There's two things along that line as a pastor who deals with this day by day in my own context that I think helps us. One is the consecutive preaching of scripture. Um, that I think is a, a good safeguard for what you just were talking about. Um, you know, there's sometimes I don't, I wish I, there are many weeks, uh, you know, I wish I wasn't preaching consecutively. I'd love to jump over that text, but you know, um, but, but preaching consecutively through books and then being intentional, Old Testament, New Testament, um, representing all the different genres. So that means I'm not avoiding the prophets, right? The prophets have to work their way in. And when you preach the prophets, you're going to preach about justice. Um, but, but over a, a ser- you know, three, four or five years of moving back and forth and preaching consecutively, you should be hitting most of what's contained in the confession of faith. So I, I think that's one thing. But I think another thing, just as a pastor working in a local context, and particularly here in Memphis, Tennessee, where issues of race and justice are so significant, um, I, 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 well, I'm a Gen Xer, so I'm, I'm kind of suspicious of manifestos and document declarations and big confessions and all this stuff, right? I, usually those are, that's kind of no offense, but that's a boomer technique. <laughs> but, but I will say when there are, when there are, when there are local issues that we can deal with, where I can build bridges and relationships with my brothers and sisters in Christ across denominational contexts, and 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 we can we can build bridges and speak biblically to a particular issue, um, then I want to do that. I don't want to sign a national thing, uh, you know, Nashville statement, Charlottesville Declaration, whatever. But but locally, for example, in 2017. The big issue here in advance of MLK 50 was we needed to take down the Nathan Bedford Forest statue that had been sitting in Forest Park since 1904. It was placed there uh, as a 
uh, basically a peon to white supremacy. The speeches that were given that day were all connected to the purity of the Anglo-Saxon race. Uh, and Forrest and his wife were buried under the statue. I mean, it, it's, a, it's an awful, awful thing. Uh, and they had been trying to take that statue down for a long time. Uh, and the mayor's office began working very hard in advance of MLK 50. They did not want that statue there, rightly so. Uh, and so an, 150 clergy came together, signed a letter, uh, and then I was chosen to write the op-ed uh, defending our action. The only two church staffs that signed the letter in its entirety were Second Presbyterian Church and Independent Presbyterian Church. And that was significant because of our own histories, particularly in relationship to the civil rights era. So, right. so for that, I had no problem speaking prophetically publicly to an issue of what I see as justice um, because it was a local issue that allowed me to band together with other brothers and sisters uh, and petition, uh, if you will, in line with 314 uh, for, for justice to come. So, yeah, so that's how it applies locally. I love that. And, and I think in our hyper-connected national and global world that we live in with social media connecting us all this way, we think on really grand scale levels. Um, we are called as local churches to serve local communities. And when that becomes kind of the primary focus, then, you know, we're working with people, even people we disagree with that we can see mm -hmm. flesh and blood folks with families and stories. And it becomes a lot harder to put a social media screen out there denouncing somebody that you just had lunch with. And so, um, I think even an issue like the spirituality of the church, we're getting into church history. We're talking about, you know, the, the American Presbyterian church, really large issues. They play itself out locally with brothers and sisters at the table. And so I think that's really key. And, and I want to encourage our listeners again, we do this regularly. Um, be having these conversations in your local churches it, with brothers and sisters in Christ, and don't just limit your exposure to a doctrine like spirituality of the church to your favorite blogs and podcasts and websites, because it's just not what the it's not what the Westminster divines had in mind. They're thinking of local churches as much as they are the Church of England. Yeah, and, and two along that same line, local sessions, right? So, Presbyterian. Yes. In our polity, um, we really do believe. One of my little sayings is that the parts are in the whole and the whole is in the parts. That's kind of a Presbyterian principle, which by that we mean that the whole, the power of the whole church is in each, each of the individual parts, even as the parts make up the whole, which means a local church session can speak with the power of the church to a local situation, which our session has. If you know a little bit about IPC's history, IPC was formed in 1965 out of the Nealon movement uh, here in Memphis. Uh, a number of students, uh, mixed race couples from Rhodes College attempted to integrate Second Presbyterian Church during the civil rights era. Eventually, after uh, national headlines and all the rest uh, and being barred from being in the church, eventually Second Pres relented uh, and uh, voted their session voted to admit all regardless of race or color. There were 150 who left Second Presbyterian Church and founded Independent Presbyterian Church, uh, and they, they did so on the basis of affinity, and it was in their bylaws um, that they would operate on a segregated basis. Fast forward to 2010, our session began a process of repentance, uh, publicly confessing sin, 
publicly repenting um, in 2012, and then in tw- uh, we 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 adopted the pastoral letter on gospel and race in 2012, and confessed our sins publicly to our congregation. Um, uh, in 2015, they adopted the personal resolution that Ligon Duncan and I wrote and pres- submitted it to Covenant Presbytery. This past year, we adopted the the PCA report on racial reconciliation, and so so the session has the privilege and power to speak to these issues locally as well. So sometimes when we talk about spirituality of the church, as you were saying, we think of this of national and general assembly. But sometimes it's much more important to think locally and in your local context, how does the local church uh, deal with things ecclesiastical uh, and speak to issues of race and justice, but also gospel issues in a local context? Because that's ultimately where all of this, if you will, the rubber meets the road, where it's all going to come to play anyway. Absolutely. And and the story of IPC is, is an incredible story of God's grace, his restorative power, what he can do um, to really transform a church for his glory. And now they have a pastor who is a church historian that understands these issues and is able to bring it to bear. And so, Dr. Lucas, I want to thank you so much for being here with us today, for walking us through uh, really a thorny doctrine, but a doctrine that we hope people would better understand and more consistently apply. Right. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Well, that is our episode for today. We want to thank our listeners. Again, we want to commend to you the writings of Dr. Lucas. Please go online, read this article. You can get it for free. It is at the RTS Journal, Owning Our Past. Also check out uh, for Continuing Church, his book. You can find it on all places, except for some reason that Lisa hasn't explained, and I can't wait to hear. There Not was, Amazon. So. I, well, let me explain briefly. Okay. So, uh, so Tish Warren, who is an Anglican uh, priest, uh, she her, her book was basically ripped off by an illegitimate publisher, yeah. and she lost a lot of money in royalties. And, and, you know, so that's one reason. But two, I just think it's important to support our Christian publishers. You know, that's how we want our Christian publishers to stay in business. And so after that incident happened, I'm like, you know what? From now on, Christian books get purchased from Christian publishers. All right. Fair enough. There you go. All right, everyone. Thank you so much. And we will see you on our next episode of Family Discussion. Well, thank you again for joining us for this week's Family Discussion. If you'd like to learn more or catch up on episodes you missed, head on over to our home at reformedmargins.com. There you'll find great content about a whole host of issues that we pray will bless your relationship with Jesus, including articles written by Lisa Spencer and me, Marcos Ortega. Family Discussion is a podcast of Reform Margins, a site dedicated to providing a platform for people of color to engage the larger Reformed and Evangelical conversations. Your hosts are Marcos Ortega and Lisa Spencer. Our producer is Larry Lynn. Family Discussion is hosted by Podbean and recorded with Audacity. If you like what you heard today, it would be a great help to us if you gave a quick review and rating on iTunes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to your favorite content so that you don't miss our next Family Discussion.